Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. The MCAT is a beast. Uh, nobody likes monster. No, 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 nobody like wakes up going. I am so excited that that I get to study for and take the MCAT and spend all this money prepping for and taking the MCAT. From all of your years' experience in the MCAT world, how much do you think the MCAT predicts a person's ability to be a good physician? Um. Well, not zero <laughs> and not at the weight that it's given. Yeah. Um, Why not zero? I'm interested to hear that. It does test critical thinking and problem solving. And I think that's something that most American colleges and universities um, don't teach as well as they could. And sometimes it's not even specific to school. It's specific to major. Um, so, for example, engineering students are often outstanding problem solvers because that's so much of how they work. Um, it can vary from physics program to physics program, but a lot of physics majors are great problem solvers. Um, often humanities majors, especially if they're like a really um, one of the kind of more rigorous and obscure humanities like like philosophy um, or actually classics. Um, those folks are often taught really in-depth problem skills, solving skills. But, um, you know, I mean, a lot of pre-med majors, a lot of pre-meds major in biology, and that is fine and it makes sense. A lot of pre-med majors really like biology, and I'm glad they do because that's <laughs> germane to their career. Um, but one of the challenges with many biology curriculums in America is that it focuses on memorization. And, um, you know, for anyone who remembers junior high social studies, at some point, probably you had a teacher talk to you about like the Bloom's taxonomy of learning, um, or maybe you've heard it by other names, right? But learning has multiple stages, right? So the first is just being able to, um, to hear it and then take it. And then can you remember it? And it goes on and on with steps. And um, it's very important that our physicians are able to evaluate and synthesize information, which is sort of the highest level of learning. And sometimes college programs don't put much focus on that. So what I like about the MCAT is even though it's not a perfect, um, it's not a perfect microcosm or model of critical thinking, um, because a lot of what you're gonna do as a doctor is actually listening and talking, there's gonna be some reading, um, and you know, and the MCAT's obviously very reading heavy, but at least it helps you shift your brain to that. Um, yeah. What I don't like about the MCAT is it's high stakes in a way that is different than what, I mean, you guys, Ryan, you can tell me as a doctor, but I think it's a very different kind of high stakes than life as a doctor. So I think sometimes the argument is, 
well, you have to be able to be perfect on the spot. You have to be able to react under pressure. You have to be able to keep cool when you're anxious um, or learn how to channel your anxiety for good, right? Because most of us understand the power of an adrenaline rush, right? Like there are some people who when they get excited or nervous just can't even think. But most of us, at least in some cases, even if it's not testing, have some situation they can you can point to where you were nervous but you were able to use that nervous energy for for good you know so whether that's you know public speaking or you know the first time you performed cpr um you know like your training kicks in and you just start going um and i don't think the mcat i like that it's high stakes because i do think it's important that our future doctors can keep cool in high stakes situations but i don't think that it's getting at the right kind of high stakes. Yeah. Um, and these are very subjective opinions, right? Like nothing I gave you is evidential. Like, yeah. um, but that's just what I've seen is I've, I've known, I mean, I'm at the point now, my OBGYN is someone who was one of my students when I was at the Princeton Review 15 <laughs> years ago. That's awesome. Um, and, um, you know, like uh, we're at that point, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> like people have grown up and become doctors under my watch. Yeah. I've been, you know, I'm not responsible for their journey. I've been part of their journey. Yeah. And I've known a lot of people who were amazing physicians who had okay stats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the kind of angle that you're taking is, is very much a, a common angle of, I I want hurdles in place for physicians to go through because it shouldn't be that the stakes that that physicians play with is um, is one where it shouldn't be that everybody can do it if they want to that you you have to jump through some hurdles uh, unfortunately and, and I think where the biggest issue comes into play is those hurdles typically have a monetary uh value onto them meaning the more money you have the better you are able to overcome those hurdles and i think that's the biggest uh issue that i see and and have been kind of awoken to more recently so uh, yeah i I definitely definitely agree that that there should be some speed bumps in place and places where people really get to ask themselves do i want to go through this pain um i i think it should be more of an emotional and effort kind of pain and not necessarily a a, a pain to the wallet. And, and that's where hopefully we can make some differences in the future. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot in this video series about the importance of starting clinical experience early, right? And a lot of students sort of have this idea that, well, school is my full-time job and then I take the MCAT and then I get my clinical. and. You know, I understand the logic and thinking that, but if you do that, like you aren't proving to yourself that you like patient care until really late in the game. Um, And I mean, I think, I mean, we're just brainstorming, right? We're kicking ideas around, but I think it could be really interesting to have pre-meds be required almost as part of their schoolwork to have some kind of externship the way, you know, engineers do, where they're doing some quarters or semesters focused on clinical experience. Um, you know, so maybe you get your CNA certification as part of your pre-med or, you know, something like that. And then it's not just about getting the experience, but about how you feel about it and how you reflect on it and how your supervisor at that position thinks you did. Um, 
I feel like something like that, especially if it's built into the pre-med experience, as opposed to like you were saying, MCAT prep, where, you know, it's at a minimum, MCAT preppers are typically spending, I mean, 300 for the exam, another couple hundred for, for practice tests. So you're looking at already 500. And then there are people that spend, you know, 1500 on a course, 2500 on a course, 5 to 15,000 for, 15, 15, for a premier tutor at most yeah. of the companies. Yeah. Um, I had someone at, um, at one of my old companies who wasn't happy with any of the elite packages we had, so they wanted triple. You know, so one person whose family could afford to spend $45,000 on MCAT tutoring. And yeah, I mean, they got into med school, but then what? And I mean, I haven't kept tabs with that person. Maybe they're doing fine, but my guess was they were going to need more help when they got to med school, you know, and that only takes you so far. You know, what, what happens when it comes time for, you know, the USMLE or your residency, like at some point you have to stand on your own feet and think I, with your own brain. I almost want to see a database of students who, who are doing that. And like, they should be <laughs> automatically excluded from medical school because like you needed your hand held that much that that is a potential issue. Yeah. Um, Dr. Wright, along with what Rachel was saying, uh, in terms of like having some sort of externship built into it, it, it almost sounds very similar to the PA route of things where a, a lot of PA schools have, if not all, and, and I'm not an expert in PA, uh, kind of prereqs and standards yet, um, is that pre PA students need like 2000 hours of clinical yeah. experience. They, yeah. they have kind of set standards. Yeah. Do you think medical schools should be doing that as, as a different way to differentiate those who really want to do this versus those who have a 4.0 and have a 520 MCAT cause they were able to spend lots of money on prep. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some medical schools try to get at that a little bit with their, you know, sort of holistic approach to admission. And there are some medical schools which are, are going outside of the standard prereq kind of list of courses and list of this and that you have to do and, say, and, and going toward a more competency-based um, approach to what they are looking for in, a, in an applicant. Now, having said that, that's a, a minority of schools, and um, and so I, I don't think that's you know it's not catching on in any greater way right now because it's it's a lot more labor intensive to do it that way, and uh, it takes a lot more staff and a lot more analysis of applicants qualitatively, and uh, and so it's 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 a it's a big pill to swallow for schools to invest that much in in the process when they've got a process that's you know that they're getting good students and that they're producing good students and that it's going okay, uh, et cetera. So, but I, I, you know, I do agree that the, the PA programs now, the one problem with a lot of the PA programs is that they're, they're very inconsistent with what they're look, what they're looking for in terms of prereqs. You know, the medical schools are fairly straightforward in terms of, and, and they're generally pretty much all the same. I mean, there's a little deviation here and there, but generally, they're pretty much all the same in terms of the core courses. When you look at some of the other health professions, PA, PT, OT, pharmacy, uh, uh, optometry, 
I mean, they're all over the place in, in terms of what they're looking for and what courses they require and how many hours of this or how many hours of that. And so when you get, you know, I, I do agree that the PA schools and some of the others really set a standard for how much clinical experience you're going to have that you need for them to look at you um, in any, you know, pretty deep way. But th that's balanced with this outrageous. I mean, we used to produce uh charts that were super detailed of just the just the for example physical therapy schools in the state of texas and it took a whole chart that took up a whole eight and a half by 11 piece of paper <laughs> to chart out what each school required and the different requirements and all that it was it was it was a little bit of insanity yeah. so so what i i think is I, the reason I say all that is to say, yeah, it's easy to sort of say, well, med schools are doing a crappy job of this or that, but med schools do do an, a, a good job on some things and do a crappy job on other things, just like all the other, you know, all the other health professions. And I think it's just um, the, the thing I worry about with setting a standard for a number of hours is that, that then you kind of, you get into that checkbox kind of mentality that, well, I got my, thousand hours and so you know i checked that box and and <laughs> you have to you know i didn't now. i didn't really pay attention to anything <laughs> and i didn't really get learn anything out of it i was just doing it so i could say yeah i did it so yep. i don't know yep makes sense yeah yeah awesome we got a lot well, of good questions over yeah there. a lot of good questions came in while we were chatting mm -hmm. um so let's see start with this can I take the MCAT this coming March to apply next June, not this coming one? I've graduated and I'm working and I'm trying to balance getting everything done while working. Mm. All right, so let me let me put this into perspective. So we're recording this August or August, October 19th. Yeah. They want to take the MCAT March, but not apply. Mm. So March of 2021, but not apply until June 2022, it sounds like. Um, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Do you see any issues with that, Scott? Well, I, I'm confused by it a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't see any issues with the timeline. I, I'm a little confused because then the latter part of the question is I'm trying to balance work and, and, and whilst, you know, studying, uh, for the MCAT. So one would think that you would want the extra year to study, the MCAT if you were not applying until the following year. So I was sort of interpreting it this a different way, but I, I'm unclear about what, what the timeline on the question is. So, you know, if, but either way, I think if, if you're applying March, if you're applying June, 2021, March, 2021 MCAT date is fine. Um, if you're applying the following year, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just confused with the time, the timeline. Yeah, I I don't understand. I don't understand the rush to take the MCAT if yeah. you're planning on not applying until June of to the following year. Yeah. And now obviously for this student saying potentially I'm working trying to balance everything, obviously MCAT prep, taking the MCAT and applications all at the same time can get o very overwhelming. Yeah. But also being out of school gives you a lot of flexibility to be working on a lot of the application stuff now so that you can you can divvy up a lot of things so yeah i, I think it just comes down to time management really i, I, yeah. I think the, the the ultimate question would be 
is there harm in taking the MCAT too early? And I think we talked about this at the, the UC Davis uh, yeah. virtual conference that we just did in terms of how the MCAT has uh, an expiration date for most medical yep. schools, whether three years, two years or three years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there's a potential issue if the student takes it in 2021, but doesn't apply until 2022. And what happens if then, they don't get in and had to reapply, to reapply mm -hmm. right. would be 2024. Mm -hmm. There's that kind of three-ish years mm -hmm. where are they mm -hmm. in that. And if they mm -hmm. need to take more time off to improve the application versus just reapplying, what does that look like? So there, there are yeah. lots of what ifs yeah. happening there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hmm. Interesting. Dr. Gray, Dr. Wright, and... Honorary Dr. Rachel, I used to volunteer at free health fair events as a translator for the patients. Uh, I will I will correct that. It's an interpreter for the patients. Uh, the event only had dental and optometry services. Can I list this as clinical activity? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a similar question, um, which may be from the same user, uh, yeah, this one this right here. here. Would any mm -hmm. previous experience as an ophthalmic tech, uh, optometric tech, and optician be considered as clinical? So basically the question, the ultimate question yeah. if we were to, to do both yeah, how, of them together is, mm -hmm. how broad? is it clinical mm -hmm. if it's not, quote unquote, physician Medical. medicine? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think it is. I mean, I, to me, I think that, what you're looking for, there's several things you're looking for in a clinical, uh, in a clinical setting. You're looking for what does the patient caregiver relationship look like? How does that work? What are the needs of the patient? You know, you're looking at communication skills and everything. So I would say, yes, it counts as clinical experience. I would say be careful in, in this particular situation. If that's all you've got, that's going to be a real problem. But if that is supplementing uh, experience in hospitals with physicians and in, in clinics where you're shadowing or where, the, where you're doing clinical work in other, in other venues, then absolutely, I think, I think you would definitely count that as clinical. But if, if, if that's all you've got and you're applying to medical school, then that would be a real issue. Yeah, I agree. Def definitely clinical experience with the mm -hmm. asterisks of and yeah. get – different slash better clinical experience that actually highlights the experiences that you're saying you want to do for the rest of your life. Yep, absolutely. Do you suggest retaking pre-med courses with a C or only suggest taking courses, retaking courses with a C minus for someone with very limited funding? Mm. Ooh, I, I like that little extra. Yeah, that's the caveat. Mm -hmm. That's that makes it tough because you know I think that it depends on how many C's there are. Really, if it's an isolated event, um, you know, you got to see and let's say Gen Chem two and and everything else looked okay, or you know physics one or you know whatever, then then I think that's not a problem. Uh, I I wouldn't say particularly if there's limited funding. I wouldn't say that it would be necessary. I think it's a little bit difficult question to answer without much more information, without seeing the, the bigger picture of the, of the applicant's sort of profile. Uh, if there's a lot of C's, then I think you got more issues than just the C's. You know, you got, as, as grades, you got 
you've got to ask yourself, why am I, why am I making C's in these significant courses that really po are pointing to what I'm wanting to do? Um, it also depends on if you've got, let's say, two C's, but everything else is B's and very limited A's, then that's, that's a problem too, because um, that GPA is going to be maybe right around three or a little bit above three, and that, that's a tough GPA to particularly in the sciences, that's a tough GPA to, to, to apply with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of sort of other issues related to the answer to this question. So it's a little bit difficult to answer without knowing more. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest, the biggest, the, the biggest caveat, <laughs> hugest, with, the hugest, you, you just, uh, the biggest caveat to that is is that limited funding thing, and, and yeah, obviously, yeah. going back to our original discussion of, of this, yeah. is that a lot of these hurdles, yeah, have a monetary um, yeah. part yeah. to them, and so students who have the funding to retake all of their classes they didn't do as well as they wanted to, and are going to have a, a better chance, mm -hmm. assuming they obviously do better in those mm -hmm. courses. Mm -hmm. um, than someone who doesn't retake one or two of those C's because of funding limitations. And does that, does that hurt the student because yeah. they don't have that funding? So, yeah, it could. I mean, the, yeah. the, the less than perfect world we live in and particularly in medical education, it, it definitely could. Yeah. Scott, everything should be free. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> well, let's move to Europe. <laughs> Sociology is not a required course, but it's tested on the MCAT. Should I take it or should I focus on studying for the MCAT instead? Rachel Grubbs, I think we need to, yeah, to bring you back up. Absolutely. From the uh, yeah. <laughs> they, this comes back to the, the kind of knowledge or, or um, the thinking that there are prereqs for medical school and then there are prereqs for the MCAT. Exactly. Um, so the MCAT does have a psycho section. It, it's had it now for five-ish years. Um, you know, what I hear from a lot of students is that the courses aren't necessary for the prep. So if you're tight on time or tight on funding, the kind of stuff that's in the psych is a mix of memorization, which you can get from the AMC, you know, what's on the MCAT document that's on the AMC website. Um, now, the flip side is, if you need that kind of humanity or social science to fulfill a, a prereq at your school, just because, you know, we're all required to take some well-rounded stuff, um, especially if this question asker is someone who maybe is very science-oriented and doesn't feel like maybe they've got the strongest critical reading skills. You know, lots of times I hear people talk about humanities or social sciences, like, oh, that's a throwaway, that's an easy A. And often they are if all you're trying to do is memorize the data. Yep. But if you think about this as an opportunity of like, if the, if the section of the exam that you know you're gonna do the worst in is cars, and you've already started to realize, oh my gosh, over half of the science sections are also critical reading. And now I'm starting to really worry about I can do well in a straight up science exam that's just about facts, but I don't do as well with passage based. Well, now your sociology course is a chance to work on those reading and thinking skills in a safer environment and a cheaper, I mean, cheap, college is expensive. But again, if you already need to take a course like that to fulfill a requirement from your college, you can kind of make it 
a double whammy, a, another mm -hmm. way to build your critical reading skills. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, there's a, it goes back to that thing of unfortunately people with more money have an easier time here. Um, but, um, if you're just asking about MCAT prep, I think you can skip it. Yeah, and let me add to that too, that I think a lot of schools, uh, a lot of undergraduate institutions are creating, particularly if they're big powerhouse pre-med type schools with a lot of pre-med students, they're creating classes that integrate psychology, sociology, public health, and a variety of other things that meet the social science elective that they have to have for their core uh, at their institution, but also address a lot of these issues that we're talking about and make it more interesting to pre-med students. So it's more relevant to what they're really look, interested in and looking at and stuff like that. So, so I think that's a good, a good thing for the undergraduate institutions that have done that to address the needs of the pre-med students. And so what I would say, if you're early enough on in your pre-med career uh, that you can look at that, uh, then definitely, you know, take something like that that would, um, that would help and, and totally agree with what you said, Rachel, about it's not just about taking the class and getting an A. I mean, we've all taken classes and gotten an A and not learned a whole lot in that class. And so it's about you committing as a student to say, I'm not only going to make an A in this class, but I'm going to learn and really integrate this, the skills, not just the content, but the skills that, like you mentioned, Rachel, into what I, what will help me on the MCAT and in the future. And maybe improve some culture, cultural sensitivity, you know? Absolutely. I mean, we've been yeah. talking a lot about the core competencies in our Thursday workshops. Yep. Um, this question asker did just add a little note to say she's graduated already. So in her case, uh, okay. it, it might not be. And it's also possible if you've graduated already that you've got some life skills that are getting mm. at what sociology gets at. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, if, if you graduated already, I would say no. You know, just don't take a class. Just you can do study on your own. And some of the I think most of the uh, test prep companies have books and stuff and materials that will prepare you for that section. Yeah, I'll give a I'll give a plug for the MCAT podcast here that I do with Blueprint Prep and um, and specifically the ones that I've done with Phil uh, talking about the psych social section. I think 20% of his students that he that he tutors get a perfect score on the psych social section uh, because of the the methodology that he uses to to go through the section, and and it doesn't it's not because they took a psychology course in college it's because they go to directly to the WMC look at that content list and and they make for darn sure that they know everything in that list mm -hmm. and, and kind of inside and out so yeah. the psych so psych so section is one of those unfortunately that's a lot of memorization uh to to know all of the the terms and, and keywords and definitions right. and then obviously the the reading comprehension and, and analysis of the passage in question to to break it down cool yep. yeah and podcast is free dollars it's free dollars. Don't free dollars. For your money back. Um, <laughs> yeah, because not everyone's going to be able to afford private tutoring with Phil Hawkins right. at Blueprint. Yep. Yeah. That's why we do the podcast. I, yeah. Uh, I like um, free. <clears throat> yeah, free has some uh, some good barrier reduction. 
All right. Here's a kind of long one. Hmm. After receiving, having taken the MCAT last uh, at the MCAT in September and receiving a low MCAT score, should I withdraw my submitted application? I already have plans to retake it in the spring of 2021, but I have also submitted several of my secondaries already. I'm non-traditional with plenty of clinical experience and a solid upward trend of post-bac credits, all sciences at a 3.8 plus GPA. Just looking for some advice. Mm. So my my question is what's a low MCAT score? Because right. I think there are a lot of, of uh, misconceptions around what a low MCAT score yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. In in terms of just raw numbers, Scott, is there is there a number where you would say yes, just stop applying and and let the the schools that you've submitted secondaries to let them know that you're withdrawing your application? Well, gee, that's that's even a loaded question because I think it depends a little bit on where you're applying and how broadly you're applying. But I would say I would, I would say anything below a 500, you know, would be suspect um, for most of the schools. Now, having said that, he's got a good, strong GPA. Uh, I think he said, put, well, he says a, a solid um, clinical experience plan and solid upward trend of post-bac credits. All science is 3.8 plus. He, don't really, he doesn't really indicate what his undergraduate uh, GPA looked like. So it's a little bit... Um, Difficult to know that, but the the postback trend is is excellent and stuff. So I think it it does depend on a little bit of what um, what the uh, what the MCAT score is and what the uh, what, how broadly is applying. But I think below a five hundred, yeah, I would say. Now, having said that, I don't think you should withdraw the application. Frankly, um, there's, there's no benefit, right? There's, there's, there's no, really there's nothing yes. that happens because you've already paid the money. You've already done everything. Just let it ride. You're going to be considered a reapplicant regardless, yep. which is not a bad thing, but I'm which, just saying, yeah. so there's no, there's no benefit to withdrawing your application. It's just, you know, it, it maybe it makes you feel better about things perhaps, but I would just say, let things ride, see what happens just assume that you're not going to get any results or anything and that you're going to retake the MCAT in the spring and reapply next year. Just assume that. But if something happens, you never know, you know, if somebody may like something in your application and they invite you for an interview. So I, I would say, let it ride and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's, and I don't know where it comes from. I mean, Everything comes from Student Doctor Network or Reddit, um, <laughs> but there's this this idea that you need to withdraw your applications. Like that does something no. profound on the other side no. of things. Um, like the medical schools go, oh look how how aware, self aware, and reflective this student no. is. No. It's amazing. They're letting us uh, they're letting us know. And it's just like eh, like. Yeah, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> yeah, huh. there's nothing. There's no magical uh, rainbows mm. on the other end of withdrawing your application. There really is no. no there's, if, as far as I know, there's no official process either. You have to go to each school and say, yeah. "Hey, like I'll let you know, you don't need to consider my application anymore." Yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, uh. So another question that came in about MCAT scores 
Do MCAT scores, no matter how old, always stay on your record? How do adcoms view crappy <laughs> MCAT scores from the past? I plan on retaking MCAT, the MCAT in April. So for the first well, I would part, say what? Oh, yeah, go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, because it's two parts, right? So in terms of how long is it on record, the easy answer is forever. Um, the more complicated answer is several years ago, they did this thing where they implemented new rules. And if your score was from like the 90s or the very early aughts, it might have dropped off. So if you happen to be somebody who has an MCAT from, I don't know, 2002, then yeah, maybe that's not on record. But you've got seven tries and they're going to see them all, even if they only accept the ones from the last couple of years. Right. Yeah, now, I will also... Yeah. I'll also add to that that if you were an applicant and a, a medical school, hello, hello, a medical school ever got your, you know, nothing in cyberspace ever really disappears. <laughs> and so if a medical school has your MCAT score in their database, it is there. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter how far back now, whether or not they're going to look at it or consider it, that's a whole different story. But once once this stuff is in a database somewhere, it, it's you know it can it's going to stay there. They're not going to get rid of. That's why every once in a while we see stories of people hiring hackers to hack into those mm -hmm. databases to mm -hmm. get those scores out of there. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a whole nother issue uh, of, <laughs> of ethical no behavior. Ethical <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to look at the positive and go, wow, look at that determination. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, it's a very MCAT heavy night. Yeah. It is. Regarding the, I mean, this is because I started with the MCAT. Regarding the MCAT, how far from the school's median is going to automatically kick someone out, or should uh, the student be prepared to defend? Is a good question. This is a, a cutoff question. Yeah, I mean, what what I like to what I like to do is say is you know if you if you think of the normal curve, you know if you think of it statistically, and you think of the normal curve, then you're thinking about not the median but the mean and the standard deviation. And when you get, I would say, two standard deviations away from that mean then that's, that's starting to get far enough out in the tail where the schools are going to really probably not, you're going to probably drop off unless there's some other really super amazing stuff in your application. Uh, when you get out in that tail of, of that curve that far, uh, then it, it gets pretty pretty limited in terms of the, uh, the time they're going to spend with, with, that, with that application. Yeah, I, I'm generally, and, and I kind of buck the trend with this in terms of MCAT score and GPA and what schools to apply to, because my general recommendation is don't look at that stuff. Let let the medical school decide. Absolutely. Based on what they're looking at, so their processes, mm -hmm. because yep. you may have something that, that is just outstanding in your application that the school has been talking about forever, that they want a mm -hmm. student like that, mm -hmm. and, and you fit that bill. And your MCAT score is way lower than than where they normally take it. Right, they're willing right. to overlook that because of other things in your application. Yeah. Let them say no. Let them say no. Yeah, and, and I think, I think, far, far, far too many students limit the medical school's ability to see amazing applications because the student is saying no to the school before the school ever gets a chance to say no to them. 
or in that case, say yes. Um, so, yeah. <sighs> okay. I used to be a pre-dental student. In that time, I have 50 hours of dental shadowing. Do I add that to my application anywhere? Um, you know, I would, <laughs> that's a tough one. I would say, again, it kind of depends on the, the entirety of the application and stuff. But my first reaction is no, I would, I would just leave that, leave mm. that. If it was, if it was clinical experience and you were like a dental tech or a dental assistant or something, then I, yeah, I might put it on there. But if all you're doing is just standing there watching or following the dentist around from room to room or whatever, then I, I don't know. I, I, because otherwise you, I don't know. I, I, I would probably say no, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing if you did add it, yeah. but I don't think it's going to benefit you any. So, and it just could raise questions that you don't necessarily want to have to go down that road answering. You want the admissions committee to focus on other parts of your application other than, well, why did you switch from dentistry to, you know, to medicine? And, you know, let's talk about that. And whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you're what you're hinting at isn't necessarily don't add it. It's more like there's really no benefit in adding right. it versus That's clinical right. experience, which we, we talked about earlier. Yeah, correct. If it was pre-dent clinical experience where you're interacting with patients, like those skills are transferable. Correct. That experience correct. is transferable, but yes. shadowing a dentist doesn't really add anything. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think if you could, if you have room to squeeze it in, in, in a shadowing activity and you have lots mm -hmm. of other shadowing experience and you can throw in, oh, I also shadowed a dentist for 50 hours if you want to do that great but i agree with with you scott that there's there's a potential of oh tell me about these this this pre-dental uh yeah. journey that you took as well yeah yeah absolutely okay kind of a clarification on shadowing versus clinical oh i love this there's lots of confusion around this so does actually working for a group of ophthalmologists count as shadowing or would it need to be during unpaid or non-working hours <laughs> so the, the 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 question the follow-up question is well what are you doing with yeah. your work are yeah. you an administrator? Are you like checking patients in? Well, that case is probably not shadowing. Right. Are you actually in the room with the ophthalmologist, with the patients, like working in some way, right? As a scribe, right? That's work. Uh, a lot of schools consider scribing just as good as shadowing. Uh, and so yeah. that, that potentially is... Um, that that would work as well. So yeah. I, they, there's no... And this is a very common thing. There's no determination of what's clinical what's shadowing if it's paid or unpaid right the question always comes back to what the heck were you doing right and let me exactly that way. if you were like the accounting person and you were in the you know an office doing accounting stuff then that's totally different than if you were checking like you said ryan checking patients in or if you were actually in the room, you know, doing stuff, you know, whatever. So I think it does depend a lot on what you were doing in that experience as to how you would characterize it and um, what value it might have and how you could talk about that, that meaning the, the, so what part. Yep. So, yeah. 
in the room scribing, interpreting, and also working up the patients. That's clinical oh, to me. Yeah, definitely clinical. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It doesn't matter paid or unpaid. No. That's yeah. clinical. That's clinical. Yeah, and, and to clarify, right, because the student asks, is that shadowing? I would no. say that's clinical experience. That's clinical. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. Definitely clinical. Yep, yep. I have six months after I graduate college until I hopefully start medical school. Oh, interesting. Six months. Oh, so they're probably in the application process now. Any tips on what to do during that mini gap? Oh, I have a lot of tips yes. for that. Yes. Uh, what, alcohol, travel, <laughs> travel, um, yeah. have fun. Yeah. Do every do what you want to do. I love this question because Students, yeah, you right. will not have that level of freedom for <laughs> forever <Ever>. more. Yes, <laughs> forever more. Forever so never more. Yeah, exactly. You, yep. I would say, use that do time nothing. if you if you've got the funds, go you know, go backpack across Europe or if not, just do something that's fun yeah. that gets you excited and, and is something that you've maybe always wanted to do or whatever, whatever that is that really, you know, floats your boat, do that. Don't do anything that you think you should do to, you know, I, we used to have gunner students who would get the textbooks for medical school <laughs> and start reading them. I'm like, you are a nut. You, yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I am very much in favor of of doing nothing and yes. knowing that there is basically nothing that you can do to prepare you for medical school. You Correct. just need to go in, jump into the deep end and start swimming as best you yeah. can. Yeah. Uh, right, the, the one potential thing I would say is if you've never taken an anatomy course, buy an anatomy coloring book and just have fun mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. Don't buy textbooks. Don't do anything else. Um, go go enjoy your life because, yeah. as, as you said, Scott, it's it's yeah. the last time you have yeah. any sort of freedom. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, and I think, too, we, another funny story. We, we, used to, we had a student one year who decided that he was going to uh, in the months before medical school, he was going to start sleep depriving himself. <laughs> Let me and start so... medical school on an empty tank. That's smart. <laughs> Did you withdraw his acceptance? Oh my gosh, we we all got such a kick out of that <laughs> that he was, you know, he was only getting like two and three and four hours of sleep a night because so he could get used to it. And we were like, okay, there's something definitely mentally wrong. <laughs> but but there's there's something there's something even even more wrong with the mentality of like that's how you survive medical school. You can't survive medical school like that either. No, you can't. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's oh. it's about time management, and yeah. if you manage your time well, you can you know you can do a lot during medical school. You can you get you can get plenty of sleep. You can actually watch TV and go to movies and have a have a real life. But if you don't manage your time well it's going to eat you up and you're going to be in that case. But uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So somebody, not that question asker, but another, another map member did point out that, you know, maybe not backpacking in Europe during COVID. Um, oh, well, yeah. I, yes. Yeah. But whatever fun things you can do given the limitation. Okay. And backpacking then, in somewhere in Western woods, part of America yeah. where you're out in the middle of nowhere and nobody you can else drive, is right? You don't have yeah. to fly oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then uh, to these guys points, 
maybe go follow a couple med students on Insta so you can see that there are real live human beings with lives yeah. that they lead. Yeah. Um, it's it's going to be really, really hard. And if yeah. you manage your time well, you're going to still be able to have a significant other and a social yeah. life and yeah, maybe work out sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my nephew just started medical school. He's a first year medical student this year. And uh, he um, moved to the city where his new uh, med school is and got an apartment. And he had just some like six months earlier, I'd broken up with his girlfriend. And uh, so he's uh, getting an apartment and, and buying some furniture for the new apartment. He buys a king size bed. And so his mother, my uh, sister-in-law, is like, what what's that all about? You know, wh why do you need a king size bed for just you? And he says, well, I don't plan on being alone during medical school. I plan, <laughs> on, I plan on having a significant other during medical school as well. So I'm preparing for that in eventuality, <laughs> which I thought was great planning, but also indicative of you can have a life in medical school and you can, you know, enjoy your, enjoy your time in medical school in many different ways. Yeah, he's I, putting it out in the universe. There's yeah. a big bag. Exactly. That's, exact, that's exactly right. And he does now have a girlfriend. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, um, just from from my own anecdotal experience, some of my best friends are are from medical school. And you, your wife you is from of, medical school. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of uh, included her in the best friends lingo. Um, but she or we, right? You're you're in the trenches together. You're yeah. you're going through everything together. Uh, but you also it, it's that kind of uh work hard, play hard mentality. Um, there were lots of times where we had lots of fun. There's med school prom. There's there's lots of fun stuff. So we'll take one last question. Um, this is kind of a long one. I think it might be a two-parter, really. How early is too early to ask an online professor for a letter of recommendation? My course is, sh is a short course, and there's no office hours. I am not sure how he would ever have anything to say, but I'm desperate for a science letter of recommendation. Personally, I don't want to ask him, but I worry that not having a science letter would be bad. So, Scott, Yikes. really the question is, should you ask for a letter of recommendation from someone who you've never met and don't have any contact with? So I would say no. Um, that letter is going to be worthless. Uh, and, and in fact, if I was that professor, I would say no. I won't. The professor should say no. Yes. Yeah, I no. can't say yeah. I can't say anything about you. I I've never met you. You got an A. Yeah, you got an A, which we already know from your transcript anyway. And so, yeah. it, I I don't think that's going to be helpful. Um, and I, I I think it would be better to have letters from non science professors that can really talk about your intellectual level and your academic commitment and your work ethic and your person you know great personality and you know et cetera than to have a letter from an online professor that you don't know who's basically says nothing. Yeah, it's it's hard. So what what should the student do for schools who require that science letter that they're freaking out about? Should they reach out to schools and say, obviously because of COVID, I'm online and I don't have an interaction with with the professors? That yeah, I would I would I, yeah I would probably reach out to a, a couple of the med schools where you're interested in applying or where the, where you are applying. And uh, and ask them for their advice and say see what you know see what they say to do and it's like we've talked about before I think schools are being willing to bend things a lot more now under these COVID conditions 
than they were in the past. And so I, I definitely think that reaching out and asking, is this something that is going to be a, a real problem for my application if I can't get a letter from a science professor and uh, just see what they say. But my suspicion is that they're going to say, well, just move forward and we'll see, you know, we'll see how things go. Yeah, I have, I have a feeling it hasn't been talked a ton about, and I haven't seen much from medical schools. I haven't really been looking either, but um, I have a feeling that letters of recommendations are going to be an area of an application that are going to be a lot more flexible, like online classes, like yeah, classes. absolutely. I completely agree with that. Well, awesome. Another Ask the Dean in the Books, yes. episode 21. We are now of age. We can uh, drink. We can uh, have have fun. Yeah. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you for watching the replay, listening to the podcast episode. If you aren't yet a MAPT member, go to mapsit.com, M-A-P-P-D.com. Sign up for a free, no credit card required, two-week yep. trial. Come, come play. Put in your information and uh, see why MAPT is the best tool yes. for free meds. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out MAPT, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.